Anecdotal evidence and some police figures suggest there's been a huge rise in cases of racist abuse in the wake of the UK's referendum. I've been here longer than you have. There's a very strong view, which you see in the newspapers, about the racism is mainly due to people in left-behind communities who feel marginalised, who feel disadvantaged, and therefore it's a problem of people without resources. For us, it's, it's too simple to say that racism is a product of class divisions and it's people who are more working class who are racist. We think it's also to do with fractures within more privileged groups. Um, and really, we need to understand what's happening at the top of the society if to understand how these politics are being shaped up. Researching racism is a difficult thing to do because um, people often don't own up to it if they are racist. You know, it's the famous thing about, you know, I'm not racist, but... And so it's very difficult to know how much racism there really is in society. We used a source called the National Child Development Survey, which is a very famous British survey. It asks questions like, I don't mind having um, a, a racial minority as a neighbour. Strongly agree, agree, disagree. What we found was only a very small portion of British people gave a very strong overt racist response. But if you look in the middle, i.e. they don't necessarily say, I don't care at all, or, or I'm happy to have a ethnic minority, but they give some kind of ambivalent response, that's a higher proportion fit into that category. We shouldn't exaggerate the amount of overt explicit racism in Britain, but there is a substantial proportion who have elements who might possibly be mobilised towards a more racist view if the circumstances allow it. So the worry is, I think, that we're seeing racism on the rise now, and I think it has to very much to do with the way inequality is working and the way in which certain interest groups are manipulating people's views. Leaders of the Brexit campaign have engendered an atmosphere where some people believe it is open season now for racism and xenophobia. It is often assumed that you know, if you're a nationalistic, it's a kind of means you're you know, allied to a kind of xenophobic agenda. Again, I mean, our research said it's more complex than that. So, you know, the majority of people in Britain using these survey sources were, were patriotic to some degree or other. However, what we found was that people who were at the bottom end of society, who were not advantaged, who were not well off, their vision of nationalism was often quite personal. It was often quite e evocative. It was about things like, I've been brought up in this country, all my experiences have been in this country, my family were raised in this country. And that's very different from more, more elite people who would often combine a nationalist view with a sense of, well, Britain is best, you know, and we are the best country in the world. The fragments are from the pro-colonial classic poem about Burma called Mandalay by Rudyard Kipling. It's that more imperial view which I think is more likely to lead to kind of racism and, ex and forms of exclusion. I've been interested in this argument that really, you know, rather than see a simple elite of people who are privileged in general, we can decompose different kinds of ways in which people can be advantaged. And uh, following famous French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, sort of see a big difference between people with economic capital, i.e. lots of money, lots of property, savings, versus those with uh, cultural capital. People with cultural resources, well-qualified, good educations, often working in top professions. Now, sometimes they overlap. I think this is quite a powerful way of looking at the elite groups. So you can find people who often um, are not, not particularly interested in culture or arts, don't necessarily read very much, but have had successful careers, often quite um, effective careers, 
and they're the ones who have more economic capital. These are the ones in our research who prove to be more attracted to a kind of imperial vision of Britishness. Whereas those with more cultural capital are more aware of the issues of racism, they're more keen on a multicultural agenda, much more concerned about equality and diversity. And really, um, what you get actually playing out here is a bit of a, an argument between these two elite wings. And this is not just about Britain. If you think about what's happening with Donald Trump in the US, you see there a very clear fracture between what, you know, liberal elite versus the kind of Donald Trump sort of economic elite. As the wealthy have got more wealthy, we're actually seeing a growing fracture between different elite groups. And those fractures are driving a lot of the politics of our time today. For almost two hours, both sides grappled with questions in front of an audience of 6,000 people on the issues of immigration, the economy and sovereignty. What we argued was that there's different kinds of nationalist identities. And actually they're quite different, but they can become allied and they can become most effectively allied when there is an external body you can both pitch against. And so what happened in the case of Brexit, I think, was this sense of Europe became this kind of bête noire, this sort of obvious, terrible thing, which the English in particular identified against, that allowed both the more imperial nationalists and the more everyday nationalists, if you like, to find common cause. I don't think that's, that alliance will stay for a long time, inevitably, I think it's a short-term thing. Once Britain becomes independent again, fully independent of Europe, I think the differences between those two visions of Englishness will, will reassert themselves. So I suspect we're going to find more conflict and more tension between those idioms again. Mm -hmm.